Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap between what you believe and what you actually experience. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thanks so much for listening. Michael, it's great to see you again. It is good to be seen. Uh, We've had a number of encore performance episodes over the summer, so it's really nice to be face-to-face doing the podcast. I was in Wichita at the Apprentice Gathering last weekend with our Restoring the Soul Mm. team. And I know we talked a little bit about that before the program, but I had so many people come up and say, thank you for the podcast, and I listened to the podcast. And uh, so to all those people that said hello to me, hello back to you, and we're just very, very grateful to be able to communicate through this medium, which goes all over the world, and um, people are saying that they're being encouraged and helped. Hmm. What are some things that, that that you're hearing that people are connecting when they're listening to Restoring the Soul? Well, that's interesting because people said across the board that they, they like some of the kind of improvisational and spontaneous uh, conversation that comes up. And when I do my own content, I'll have a topic and you and I may have some questions, but I call it riffing where – you throw me a question, which is like play in the court of C, and then I just see what notes and improvisation can come up. So the topics that I heard people comment on the most were uh, conversations around shame that we did a while back with uh, addiction and shame in particular. Uh, Kelly Gray, our Restoring the Soul intensive counselor and my colleague, we did a day-long workshop at the Apprentice Gathering on the Enneagram and shame. And that was very, very well received. Um, and a number of folks came up to me there. People also um, uh, were were curious about getting more information about trauma. And so I want to really head into that in the future, especially around the topic of what to do when someone you love has trauma and what that actually means, and some of the things that I've learned and some of our other staff have learned along the way, where oftentimes uh, it doesn't get diagnosed, it doesn't get assessed, and people are getting good help, but for the wrong set of issues and the wrong problems. So half the battle, I say, is always getting the right help for the right problem at the right time. Well, we have uh, been mired deeply in your book, uh, Surfing for God, um, you know, over the last dozen or so uh, episodes. 
and we're going to continue on in this direction, but there's a portion of the book that you spend uh, talking about accountability. And over the next couple episodes, um, for three episodes in particular, we're going to talk about cop accountability, coach accountability, and cardiologist accountability. So why don't we kind of launch in with today's episode, you're going to be focused on cop accountability. Uh, Exactly what is it, Michael? Well, let's start with the topic uh, in general of accountability. And basically, if you look up the word accountable, uh, it's not just tracking and measuring like every month uh, my mortgage company sends me a statement saying that here's my payment, how much I owe, when it's due, but also how much I owe on the entire mortgage. And if I don't pay my mortgage, then I get a late fee. And if I go several months doing that, I get an eviction notice, right? Everybody can relate to that. And it might be um, that we're overeating and we've gained weight and we go to our doctor and the doctor says, you know, you need to get your cholesterol down and lose weight. And if you don't, you're this percentage likely to have uh, a coronary incident. And so accountability is about tracking and measuring with a certain problem um, or set of data, but then it's also about a consequence. And so when we typically speak of accountability as it relates to um, pornography, sexual addiction, sexual sin, lust, or any other problem behavior, it, it um, immediately becomes something that even though I think people are good intentioned, it really becomes about kind of negative consequences in place. So let me just start with, um, yes, you're right, in Surfing for God, there's less than a page that I wrote about this, and it could probably be a book unto itself, and there's been some decent writing about it. But overall, I'm not a fan of accountability, uh, at least not in the way that people typically discuss it. And um, in Surfing for God, I actually made the statement that how we think of accountability often is more hurtful than helpful. And so I did a survey uh, when Surfing for God came out, and I everywhere I would go to speak or talk, I would just ask men to share randomly about what do they feel, not what do they define accountability, but what do they feel when they hear the word as it relates to needing an accountability partner. And here are the top 10 words. Number one was shame. When I hear the word accountability, I feel shame. Two, pressure. Number three, failure. Number four, and I remember this person kind of laughed as they said it. The, their phrase was busted. <laughs> you know, like, okay, the cops have shown up at the party. Uh, number five, uncomfortable. Number six, exposed. Number seven, inadequate. Eight was guilt. Nine was avoidance. Ten was discipline. So, you know, all of those words, somebody might say, well, you know, you need pressure. If the doctor tells you you need to lose weight, get your cholesterol down, and without that pressure, you're never going to do it, and you'll be unhealthy. So these words could potentially have an upside, but the point I want to make is that there's a negative association with the word accountability, and especially for people who, for a longer period of time, have been trying to overcome their compulsive addictive behavior, and accountability alone doesn't work. But here's the thing. 
I I looked back over uh, my Christian life, uh, which goes back to 1980, and I thought, when did this word come about? And prior to the Promise Keepers movement in the middle of the 1990s, which started out here in Colorado in Boulder uh, with with uh, Coach Bill McCartney, prior to that, the word accountability wasn't really used. And nowadays, whether it's around spiritual disciplines or whether it's around uh, sexual sin, it's almost as if accountability has become this new spiritual discipline unto itself that we need accountability in order to grow. Now, if people are listening, they'll go, well, I'm, I'm tuning out of this podcast because I think accountability is important. Of course it is. Of course it is. And what I want to do is contrast these three types of accountability because each week as we go from cop accountability to coach to cardiologist, you're going to see a qualitative difference in the kind of engagement, in the motivation, in the goal, and in the level to which uh, the Trinity and Jesus are actually woven into the fabric of this. So I asked another man prior to uh, thinking about doing this podcast, just just tell me what happens when you hear the word accountability, because the little survey I did was further back. And he was even more descriptive. He said, when I hear the word accountability, I get a pit in my stomach. I said, why is that? He said, because it was a waste of time. Why was it a waste of time, I asked? Because I used to just lie to people. So again, we're looking at this progression from cop to coach to cardiologist because addicts lie. And Brian, I've not known you long enough. Uh, you didn't know me when I was a pathological liar, but I remember being with my mentor, Larry Crabb in Atlanta and me sharing about my quote, sexual struggle, which was like on a scale of one to 10, I was at a 10, but I kind of let him think that I was at a two or a three. And he looked me in the eye, he leaned forward and he said, have you ever been unfaithful to your wife? And I swallowed hard in that subtle way, like I hope he didn't just see me swallow because I'm nervous. And I lied right to his face. Nope, I haven't been. And I had already crossed the line then. And I knew that if I said yes, that there was a 99% chance that I would I would lose my job with him and my life would fall apart. And so the lying is part of addiction. We've said this before on the program, but that self-deception is the chief characteristic of addiction. Therefore, trusting that an addict that is prone to self-deception and deception will tell the truth to their accountability partner, that's just setting us up for failure. Was there a point where a pathological liar will stop when they recognize that accountability actually is for their benefit than coming against them. At what point was that for you in particular? That's a great question. I think there's different reasons why people lie, um, but and we, we could do a whole episode on that. But for me, what happened was I began to learn that there was safety that it was actually okay to be vulnerable, that 
my wife could be trusted with what was inside of me. That Larry, for example, had I shared that I had been unfaithful, I still might have gotten fired, but I know that he would have been there with me and walked with me just as he did when the truth came out uh, three or four months later. So I think that what what breaks the cycle of deception and lying is first and foremost being caught in the deception and um, someone staying, someone not leaving, someone going, um, you know, I really want to know you. And then over time, that compulsion to lie and misrepresent reality that begins to deflate. Um, there was one time after my life blew apart on the D-Day for Julianne and I in July of 1994, where I told her on that day, I will never lie to you again. And about three months later, she asked me to go to the grocery store to pick up a prescription and some juice or something like that. And um, I had the prescription in my pocket and I came home with the orange juice, but not the prescription. And with my hand in my pocket, feeling the prescription there and feeling really um, shame and embarrassment that I didn't get it, she said, well, did you get the prescription? And my reflex was to say, yes. And then I was going to go back and get the prescription and not tell her that I forgot it. And so I said the word yes, and then I said, I mean no. <laughs> and and it was because it was like I something as simple as I forgot I couldn't let myself be exposed that way. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I said yes, I just like laughed. And she's like, yeah, it's kind of easy to to do that. And, and she really was very gracious. But that's how reflexive it is for many men. And I tell counselors all the time that I'm training that one of the mistakes that counselors make is we often significantly overestimate how much people want to change when they come to us for counseling, which sounds silly because someone's paying a lot of money for counseling. One would think that they are really there to change and they're highly motivated. But most people, including myself, have gone to counseling in the past, at least part of the time, wanting to be fixed, wanting to be told what to do to make life work as opposed to actually change. And so let's jump in um, with your question As we talk about accountability in general, the first point with all of this is that accountability requires vulnerability. And without vulnerability, there there can be no accountability. Um, But then vulnerability requires trust. And that trust is in relation to an other who is worthy of trust, who is going to not just roll their eyes or say, I can't believe you did that. Someone who's going to be safe emotionally, somebody who will maintain um, confidence and uh, not go sharing secrets and things like that. Trust requires courage, and courage being that, that inner resolve to step into something risky, to step into something messy, to step into something potentially painful. And therefore, courage requires faith. And so to be a recipient of accountability is really to exercise faith. It's not simply something you do so that you don't sin anymore. So I used the the phrase cop accountability uh, earlier. 
in this first stage, this first week of the three-week uh, uh, podcast that we're talking about accountability, what is cop accountability? D- this comes to mind, you know, a policeman. You know, yeah, exactly. How, how- exactly, Brian. The image is that of a cop, of a policeman, of a law enforcement officer. And the image is that I set up an accountability relationship with you, Brian. I'm struggling with problem X. Let's just say with uh, I can't stop watching porn. And maybe uh, I'm single and I feel a lot of shame. And so I go to my pastor and my pastor says, I know this guy, Brian, and you should meet with him for breakfast. So we set up a breakfast and I say, I need accountability. I'm struggling with this. And you go, okay, let's meet every week for breakfast. We'll meet at this exact place. And I'm going to ask you a list of questions. And I've heard a list of anything from three questions that are kind of these key questions that are known a little bit in uh, porn and addiction circles up to 12 questions that are on a piece of paper and the person has to check in. And it can be a question like, uh, have you been sexual with anyone besides your spouse? Um, yes or no. Have you viewed any pornography or naked images since last week when we met? Yes or no. Have you purposely lingered over any sexually suggestive programming or um, uh, anything online? And then the final question, and this is one of the questions that uh, a lot of these lists have in common, is are you lying to me now? And I've worked with dozens, if not hundreds of men who have been asked this question because Promise Keepers and other ministries have, have put these forward, and they look the person in the eye, are you lying to me now? No, of course not. And they might share what I what I called in Surfing for God. I think I said it was the 93% rule. So I'll share 93%. Um, yes, I looked at porn. Yes, I masturbated, but not sharing um, the fact that um, that you paid paid money to get to a certain site. Or, yes, I flirted with this person at the office, but not sharing that uh, that there was kissing or something like that. So even if the person doesn't lie, there's oftentimes a kind of withholding. But with this police officer relationship, you're the police officer, and you have your radar detector, and you have your little book of tickets and your police pencil, and if I speed, which is to uh, sin sexually, then I'm going to come to you and tell you that I'm speeding, and you're going to write me a ticket. And that's the consequence that I spoke of at the beginning, that accountability inherently needs some kind of consequence. If I don't pay my mortgage, I will end up homeless. And the idea is that if I know that I'm going to have to go to you and you're going to write me a ticket, which is this negative consequence, I could lose my license, I might have to pay a hefty fee, I might get points, my insurance uh, rates might go up. Of course, I'm mixing metaphors here, but the idea is that the negative consequence is what's going to prevent me from doing something. And that is Uh, a model of change that is rooted in shame. If we have a relationship where I know that you're going to shame me or where I will feel shame, then I will change. And there's a lot of problems with that, but um, one of which is I'm simply focusing on not sinning as opposed to on either dealing with the root issue or on loving and asking the question, what does it mean to be loving? So each of these 
kinds of accountability I'm going to call a gospel, a type of gospel. And cop accountability is a gospel of sin management, to borrow the phrase from Dallas Willard. Yeah, Michael, I, I really appreciate the perspective at which you are approaching uh, this look at accountability um, and not making it really fear-based or, or shame-based, but almost um, redemptive. So how can cop accountability, that first stage for people, really be a, a great step in a, in a path of healing? Well, that's just it, is that it's a step. It can't stay there. Um, I would argue that there is a time and a place for cop accountability. So if in 1994, when my double life and my addiction came out, and if I said to Julianne, you know, I just made a mistake, I really screwed up, uh, I, I've, uh, I've read a couple books, and I've talked to a counselor and a friend, and I'm going to go to church every week, and... Uh, I'm going to check in with this guy that I know from Bible study, but I continued to struggle. It would be appropriate, and I would hope that someone would be not just like a cop, but like a SWAT agent getting in my face saying, dude, what are you doing? You know, you're going to lose your marriage. This is, this is destructive. You're hurting her. And, uh, this is, this is not good for your heart. So it's, it's good and redemptive when it can be confrontive and there's a time and a place because of self-deception and because of how addicts just naturally live in denial that oftentimes addicts need to be confronted with strength. Um, and to go back to the police metaphor, a, a, a sense of there is going to be some force here and not force against you, but a force for you. And an extreme example of this would be when an alcoholic or a substance user is so in denial that people will do an intervention where they get together and they say, this is what's going to happen. So the other aspect of, of cop accountability that can really move it more in the direction of redemptive accountability is simply boundaries. People oftentimes don't think about what are healthy boundaries that I can put in place. And so these are the kinds of things like um, not having access to uh, devices. And one of the first boundaries that's often put in place with COP accountability is now there's an entire industry around online uh, accountability software. And I think this is great. Uh, one of the first things I hear all the time, you know, if I'm talking to a couple the husband will say, yeah, yeah, I told her I, I've got a Covenant Eyes program. And, uh, you know, then my accountability partner gets a copy of all of my emails and every website that I've been to. And I think that's great. I think that that's a starting point. Why? Because it puts a barrier in between the addict and the acting out. However, I have never, ever had a conversation with someone, and I, and I hope that there are many people that have experienced this, but I've never had a conversation with somebody where they said, hey, I got covenant eyes and I've never struggled again with lust. Um, all it does is it slows it down. But confrontation, boundaries, and strength on behalf of the other, uh, that it can lead to the pursuit of someone's heart. And that's what this is all about, Brian, is that as we go from cop accountability to coach to cardiologist, ultimately, it's, it's ultimately 
a transition from accountability, which is an arrangement where there's a negative consequence, to what I call accessibility. So from accountability to accessibility. And accessibility is you have access to me, to my heart, to my story, to not just my sin this week, but to what's happening inside of me. And that's when it really becomes uh, more redemptive. So I talk about a relational focus for each of these kinds of accountability. And for the cop accountability, the relational focus is really checking in. And we all need that. As I've been a part of 12-step groups uh, for many years on and off, and up until COVID, I was a part of uh, an Overeater, Overeaters Anonymous 12-step group that, um, though my struggles with food have been on and off, I found it just very, very helpful. And the focal point for me was I just wanted to go and be with other people, some heavy, some uh, thin, some old, some athletic, all different types who use food to self-medicate and just to be with them. And in the open round, how are you doing? How is your week? Uh, it's been really hard. There's something powerful about that. And so that's the upside of this. I want to talk about a couple of situations where cop accountability can also be beneficial. And that's when a person is not fully engaged in the recovery process. They are not 100% bought in that they actually have a problem and that this isn't just a matter of, whoops, I messed up. So if there's a history of lying or deception, if there's a history of minimizing the problem, um, not really understanding the deeper roots of it, if there's a history of not coming clean, and this often looks like the person who is always caught, it is discovered that they're looking at porn as opposed to that they disclose that. Uh, one is a posture of humility. If uh, a man goes to the person in his life and says, I'm really struggling with this and I want to bring it into the light, that's very different from the person who hides and hides and is caught over and over again. Um, and so when a person hasn't owned their addiction and compulsion, it's going to be more important to be the cop and to say, here's the effect that this is having, not just on others, but on you. And it's often uh, the addict that is the very last one to see the effect that it's having on them, because that's always minimized. So, Michael, as we look at uh, these stages of accountability, and I, I apologize, I don't want to get too far ahead of us. How does how does somebody know um, that they're ready to um, move on to coach accountability? How long is it reasonable to stay in a season of cop accountability? Is it like six months? Is it a year? Or does it all just depend on how vulnerable you're getting and comfortable with your accountability partner? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm glad you brought that up because although – talking about these three levels sounds as if they're linear and that they build upon each other. Uh, it's more dynamic than that, and it's possible to have a cardiologist conversation at the very beginning of a person's recovery. Mm. And so I've shared this story in other podcasts, and I tell the story in Surfing for God, but you know, the very first time I went to counseling as an adult was when uh, the the 
prostitution ring that I had paid for and used their services way back when it was on the, uh, the, the, the front page of the local newspaper. And so I lived with this great fear that I was going to be exposed and found out because there were some athletes and celebrities that were involved in it. So I went to the counselor, walked in, and I talked nonstop for almost an hour. And at the end of the time, he did not say to me, well, uh, you're a sex addict and what you need is accountability or what you need to do is get on some medication because you're depressed or you need to go to a group. Had he said those things for me at that particular time, I wouldn't have gone back to counseling because I had tried all of that. And so what he said to me, and this directly moved into cardiologist accountability, he said two things. I have a question and a comment. First, the comment you strike me as a very lonely man. And then he said, and now the question, are you ever at a loss for words? And I sat there like he knocked the wind out of me and didn't know if I'd just been mugged or if I had been loved by a brother in Christ, but I knew something important happened. And then he looked at his watch like we were out of time and he said, same time next week. And he let me walk out. And I think that he somehow sensed with everything I told him that I had done that I wasn't buying in anymore to the superficial answers. Now, having done all that work at the heart level, later on, when I began to address the root issues, there was a kind of accountability that I could have used that was more cop accountability and cardiologist accountability, which If we think of it from a linear perspective, it's like, why would you back up into that other form? But once I understood the roots, some of the cravings and temptations were still there. Uh, And being able to reach out to somebody and say, hey, here's what's really happening, uh, that would have been really, really helpful. So understanding alone uh, doesn't, doesn't change us. Michael, we're about ready to uh, wrap up on this particular episode um, regarding accountability. Is there anything, any final words uh, that you want to leave our folks with um, this week on COP accountability and then in preparation for our next episode on coach accountability? Yeah, absolutely. Just in summary, the COP accountability, the focus is really on the external. It's the focus on here is this behavior, here is this sin that you're doing, and I'm going to relate you in a way that will really um, help you to stop that. I speak about a currency, and when I say currency, like money, like in the U.S. we have dollars, and in Thailand there are bot, and in Israel, I guess there were shekels, or (laughs) I guess, yeah, in Israel. Um, And so there's a currency with each of these. And so the currency that is kind of given back and forth in COP accountability is disclosure. There's the expectation that I will come into the relationship and disclose. And the posture of the heart that's really required is humility. And so COP accountability, if there is authentic disclosure— And if there's humility, God can use that. And then there's the potential for the conversation to become richer, for the conversation to become something more than just writing tickets for speeding, so to speak. Now, the wild card in all this is that there are are people, let's say you have two 20-year-olds in college that are part of the same Bible study, and 
with 20 years of life experience and no counseling degree or uh, as much life wisdom as somebody who's in their 60s might have, sometimes it's hard to even know what what it means to have these cardiologist conversations. And that's where I would just encourage people to go back to the Surfing for God book and pay attention to what are the deeper issues, what's being fleshed out beyond the behavior. So we've wrapped up another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. In fact, the heart of what we have done for nearly 20 years is intensive counseling. When you can't wait months or years to get out of the rut you're in, our intensive counseling programs in Colorado allow you to experience deep change in half-day blocks over two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.